Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1941 Howard Hawks film, Sergeant York. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great. Barrett, um, this is our fourth Howard Hawks film. Um, and uh, I, one of the things I want to get into later is where does this fit into um, not only the Howard Hawks movies that we've seen, but the the larger um the larger Hawks filmography. I was, I was just now doing some looking at different people's lists of what they think the great Howard Hawks movies are. And it's interesting where this movie falls in that, but we can have that discussion a little bit later. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's start with your history with this film. Uh, this is a film I've heard about for many years and I had never before seen. So I just use this. Really? Um, I have a very inadequate um, coverage of Gary Cooper's career. Uh, I've seen relatively few Gary Cooper films, and I knew this is one of his Oscar wins. So I wanted to see it for that reason. And then, of course, just in terms of this riff we've been doing on World War One, it seemed like the uh, the perfect opportunity to to watch it. And it takes us back to 1941, uh, the year of uh, Citizen Kane, among other great films. Yeah, you just laid out a whole bunch of stuff I want to get into with this movie, so I'm very excited. So I'm always I always love it when it's something you haven't seen because I can ask you, uh, and you can give me a probably a pretty accurate depiction of like first impressions and and what were your expectations? Okay, that's a good question. Um, expectations was were um, that we were going to get more of the war than we did. Um, you know, when I realized what he, when I realized it was actually more of a biopic than a war film. That so that so that was the way in which it initially kind of um, uh, belied my my expectations. Um, the first impressions. Um, oh, I can tell this is Howard Hawks. Um, the 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 extended um, first part of the film that had a lot of the humorous elements. Uh, that you come to expect. From, we talked about that before with Hawks. Like that's, you know, there, he's always going to find a way to do something, so, do something uh, funny uh, with the character. So that that was so. In that sense, I felt like yes, I was definitely in Howard Hawks's hands. And then, of course, thinking about the shift in in tone um, when it when they it kind of has three parts in a way. It's two parts, but three parts. You could say it's the it's Kentucky or it's Tennessee. It's the training camp briefly his moral dilemma and then and then the battle and you can see clear tonal shifts um from when you move from Tennessee to he goes into the army and that's the point at which you feel like and we'll talk about this too hmm it's kind of a propaganda film isn't it uh, and, and so there's that big tonal shift i think well barrett you and i have some very similar thoughts on this. I even, even to the extent where I have a page in my notes when I was prepping for this, when I said, this movie really has two parts. And then I crossed it out and said three parts in the exact same way. You just said that. Uh, and then had that same breakdown. So, so I think, I think, uh, I think our, our uh, way of, of at least thinking about this film has some, some crossover that, that, that we can dive into. You said one word that I want to, I want to talk about a little bit before we get into the specifics of this, which is, you said this film is kind of a biopic um, or biopic. I'm sorry. I had, oh. I had a, I had a, a, a professor in graduate school, a film professor who always, who always uh, pronounced that biopic. So in my head, I have that, even though it makes no sense to call it a biopic. So if I say that, <laughs> listeners, I apologize. Biopic. So I put it, it, it's a biopic or a historical film. Uh, and maybe we can think about the differences between, you know, what makes a, bi- a biopic a biopic. I was, I went back to to look at what are other things 
which theoretically could fit into that category that we have watched. Um, so here's the list. I, I came up with uh, seven or eight, and they're questionable. Some of them are mm-hmm. questionable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to get into w- what is a biopic versus a historical film. So Raging Bull was the most obvious, like, that mm-hmm. is an attempt at a at a kind of uh, biopic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one could argue Elephant Man um, is yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then it gets then it gets a little dicier. I said Passion of Joan of Arc in that it is based on actual <laughs> transcripts of an actual person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, my darling Clementine. Again, we're getting further away from it, but eh. yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, uh, which is yeah. interesting to think about with this movie because that is a movie about mythologizing, mm-hmm. um, uh, and and I want to get into that. Uh, the only other thing I had then was of Gods and Men, which is based oh. on a true story. We don't yeah. we don't really have a lot of other things we've watched. You know, even something like the Battle of Algiers is like a fictional account of real events. It's not trying to depict real specific people. It's fictionalized versions of them so i didn't include that even though in some ways that be, might be more historical and realistic mm. than some of the other things we listed um so this made me wonder um uh are you a fan of of biopics is that a and, 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 okay and, and there's a question embedded in that i was gonna say is that a genre you like and then i took a step back and say to think is that a genre or is that a kind of story within a within that you can use many genres because obviously some of the things i listed are westerns and some of the things are this is a war film sort of or so so how do you feel about biopics does that does the idea of that excite you or well that's that's a good question sam i have um i have a ambivalent relationship to biopics because um to me one of the challenges of a biopic especially if it's a relatively contemporary character is to what degree is the actor or the actress called upon to do a kind of imitation uh, of the, uh, you know, a kind of impression? So I think about a couple of fairly recent biopics, the two Capote films, for example, and the way in which, um, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman or, or Toby Jones, you know, physically resembled Capote and then they had to kind of sound like him. So... So I, I get uncomfortable with a biopic if I feel as though either the character, um, either the actor too closely resembles the character or doesn't resemble the character closely enough at all. So I had a really hard time with Anthony Hopkins in Shadowlands because he doesn't look or sound anything like C.S. Lewis. Um, but I didn't have any trouble with Daniel Day-Lewis in Lincoln because I have no actual experience of Lincoln. We all have an image of Lincoln. He looked enough like him, and nobody knew exactly what Lincoln sounded like. So for me, a lot of the, the difficulty I sometimes have with a biopic is whether or not it intersects in a way with the actual historical figure to the degree that I can accept it. I've never been able to bring myself to watch Ali, for example, Ali. I mean, even though I like Will Smith and I like Muhammad Ali as a, as a historical figure, for, there's something about I don't want to see that history played out in part because I lived through almost all of Muhammad mm-hmm. Ali's career, and I'm not quite sure what I would gain from the film. So I have a very ambivalent relationship to biopics. I also would say I want to pick up on something you said that's really important, and that is that I'm not sure that a biopic exists completely separate from some kind of historical, social context. In other words, it's often a way to tell a larger story. So even though Lincoln is about Lincoln, it's also, of course, about the Civil War and it's about that period of American history. Um, and so the other key word you use is that word uh, mythologizing. 
Um, and you see that very strongly in Sergeant York. You literally see the myth of Sergeant York at, towards the end of the film where the scope of his achievements become completely magnified. And in fact, the studio had to pay off a whole bunch of the guys in his platoon because the film had so exaggerated his exploits that they didn't want them to come forward and say, well, wait a minute, it wasn't exactly like that. So I'm not, I'm not sure any biopic doesn't have an element of mythologizing to some degree. Absolutely. No. And, and I want to get into that because uh, the existence of this movie and, uh, and sort of what I know about Alvin York is complicated and, 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 um, and we can, we can, we can get into that. Another question that I had, um, and this is more defining terms a little bit, the difference between a biopic and a historical film, like how much of somebody's life needs to be covered for it? Because this really only covers three or four years of Alvin York's life. I mean, if this starts in 1916, um, and, and goes until probably 1919, 1920, like there's not that much. So can it be a biopic if it's sort of like, well, here's, here is a, a pretty short window in the life of a man who lived a pretty long life. Or is this something, is this telling about a historical moment that has a central figure in the center of it? Um, and then also, how much does it need to be focused on one person? This definitely focuses on Alvin York. So it has the, the it has that part of a biopic, but is this too short of somebody, too short of a segment of his life to, to really, you know, we don't get like, child alvin york and we definitely don't get alvin york post 1920 in this and he's an interesting guy post 1920 yeah now that's a really good point sam I, I think you know with biopics um i just for some reason coal miner's daughter just stuck it stuck in my head as a good biopic um you're, you're right i mean biopics tend as the term biography implies right biopics you tend to expect some kind of sweep or scope of a, of a person's life um so I'm going to propose that it's not a biopic of Alvin York in terms of the individual person, Alvin York. It's a biopic of the myth of Sergeant York. And so in that sense, you're right. It's, it's, it's part of a larger narrative. He becomes a way to talk about um, the ideal of heroism, the ideal of, of uh, fighting the good fight. And it's a biopic only insofar as it shows you the kind of the creation of that of that of that uh, character i mean it's a it's a religious conversion story as well mm -hmm. um and, and a patriotic so, conversion story. yeah exactly so um yeah i mean in a sense it's it's a very truncated example of of a biopic but at the same time because he is a real historical figure you know it's i don't think you can say it's completely subsumed as a war film those two mm -hmm. things kind of exist in tandem absolutely so um I'm, there's reasons that I'm going down this path of asking some of these questions, um, uh, but but I want to ask them in a movie like this. How much do you care about historical accuracy in big ways and in small ways? How important is that? That's a really I mean I mean that's that's a really good question to ask about any film, of course, you know, and any film that purports to show you historical events. Um, I. I, 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 I actually care a lot about historical accuracy and historical inaccuracy or anachronisms um, bother me if they really end up falsifying. I mean, I can, under, I, I can understand 
exaggeration or ellipses or composite characters, of, those yeah, kind of things. different yeah. kind of emphases. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. Or, or taking set. Well, as we talked about with, um, uh, with Paths of Glory, you know, taking several different characters and kind of amalgamating them into mm-hmm. one in order, in order to, well, it's, it's like, um, it's like, uh, Emily, Emily Dickinson said that, that uh, tell the truth a slant, right? I mean, I'm okay. Or Picasso says art is a lie that tells the truth. I'm okay. As long as there's a, there's a basic truthfulness being conveyed. It's when you actually get something that seriously falsifies the truth. So for example, you know, maybe Alvin York didn't take 132 people single-handedly. You know, maybe he had quite a bit of help. Is that is that a falsification, or is that more of a um, more of a? Uh, it makes it a much more interesting film, right? Mm-hmm. To have him do as much as he does single-handedly. Did he really use the turkey gobble to get those what, those German snipers to look right. over the parapet? It's a great piece of storytelling to have yeah, that callback. Prob- probably not, but it doesn't change the fundamental fact that he was a decorated war hero, and you know. So I, I'm, I'm not sure I'm exactly answering your question. Um, you to- Sam, you absolutely I, I, are. You absolutely are. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm saying yeah. You can. You know, I, I don't, I don't, in a sense, I would say it's not art if it simply recreates reality, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, art is about doing things with reality. And and the question is, how are you, through what you do artistically, how are you illuminating? How are you helping people to see something they wouldn't otherwise have seen? That's the, that's artistic license, mm-hmm. but that's, that's what, that's what you can do. Okay. This is probably, this is the last tiresome question like this. I think I'm going to ask how much of this movie depends on it being based on real events or in other words, could this movie have been as a, could this movie have been effective if it was entirely a fictionalized world war one story about a, I mean, it's still a good story about a guy who's a conscientious objector and struggles and then goes and does this, you know, seemingly impossible thing, you know, and, and has to, and has to kind of reconcile these, these different things. Um, the great part about this story is, regardless of how mythologized parts of it might be or fictionalized elements of it might be, it's like, it's this actually is kind of the Alvin York story. Like, like, like the shape of it is still there. Um, Does this movie, obviously it gains something by being based on a real person, but if it was entirely fictionalized, is this, does this movie make sense? I guess is what I'm asking. Well, I think it's impossible as you already alluded to, I think it's impossible to separate that question from the historical context of the film. In other words, this you know this film comes out in in 1941, and as you've already alluded to several times, you know Alvin York is a well known figure. He continues to be a national hero. Um, so it's it's kind of impossible, I think, to 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 posit would this film be as successful if Alvin York had just kind of been, been, been made up? And I, I think my answer is going to, is, is much, very much leaning towards no, towards no, because I think it is in, it's inextricably intertwined with uh, 20 odd years of the Alvin York myth being kind of stamped into the national consciousness. And so um, I, I, I don't think audiences would have responded the way they did if it hadn't if it hadn't been for um for his reputation what they what they do about him sure and that is definitely a draw to the movie in the same way 
my mom loves to tell me, oh, this movie is based on a true story. Like, 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 like there, there are definitely um, audiences for whom that is a sell that that is a major selling point to be like, I'm going to watch this thing that I know is a movie and I know there's liberties taken, but I also know that this is, I'm not watching purely a creation of somebody's mind, but like that there, there are kernels of truth and reality in this. Okay. Well, let, let me give you a bizarre analogy. I think it's I think it's a bizarre analogy, but I think it works. One of the reasons why people responded so strongly to a film I don't like, uh, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. One reason people responded strongly to that is because we as Christians believe that is a true story. Mm-hmm. So if he were just making up something about this person who suffered and died in the way that Jesus dies in that film, I don't think it would have had the same impact on us. At the same time, I also think that that premise about there's a real Jesus and a real life story to be told, I think that helps to explain some of the backlash against Scorsese's Passion of the Christ. Mm, that's exactly uh, what I was thinking. I mean, I mean, I mean uh, sorry. Um, Tem- Last Temptation of Christ. Yes, yes, Last Temptation. Um, because, again, we, we feel like that's based on a real story, and that's not the way the story should be told. So I, so I, I guess I'm going to use that as a kind of analogy to, 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 to Sergeant York. Okay, that makes sense. So as we dive into this movie, um, going into this, how much do you did you know or do you know about Alvin York? I knew very little about Alvin York. I I confess I had to run to Wikipedia to get a to get a quick education on Alvin York. Okay, same with me. I mean, I knew the basic outline of his story. I could have said conscientious objector turned war hero who does this impossible thing. Like that's which is the shape of the movie. I knew the shape of the movie. Uh, one of the big, con- and I'm I'm saying this as a compliment to this movie, is the day that I, so I watched this on Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, I got my hands on Alvin York's autobiography and read it because I'm like, oh, I, I really like, I kind of want to know more about, because I could tell there's parts of this that it's like, this feels like Hollywood, but like, I kind of want to know more about Alvin York. Mm. Um, and it was, I will say, if if anybody liked this movie, if anybody's interested the night so there's two york kind of autobiographies there's a 1922 one and then the 1928 one is the one i read and that's based more on his war diaries and it's it's kind of as told to this australian veteran journalist um from world war one and it's quite it's quite a good read uh you know um and and i feel like that is that is the definitely um the screenwriters of this film are leaning on that 28 uh, autobiography. So, um, so I, I didn't know much about York. I watched the movie. Then I learned a lot about him and then I watched the movie again. So, um, so that's actually one of the things that, that, uh, that makes this film really interesting for me. So as you said, this film has, um, I would say you could almost argue four distinct parts. Now what's interesting. And I was also surprised that for a, a uh, two hour and 15 minute movie, 75 minutes of this movie are pre him going into the army. The yeah, largest yeah. chunk of this movie is stuff mm-hmm. happening in Tennessee. Also, maybe my favorite part of this movie is that is, I mean, I actually think um, once he goes into the army and it feels like, I wonder if there was an intermission break. It feels like an intermission break when you get that full mm-hmm. fade to black and then you get the, um, the mm-hmm. camp Gord- Fort Gordon or camp Gordon, wherever in Georgia, I loved that first that first chunk. So that is um, York's kind of wild days, his falling in, in love, 
his working for a piece of bottom land, the turkey beef shoot, which is maybe one of the best sequences in the movie, Uh, his conversion, his Christian conversion, and then sort of the call to war and appeal for conscientious objector status. Uh, Part two is York in basic training. So the officers kind of questioning, like, is this guy, are you really going to fight if you applied for this status? Him showing his worth and then his convert his patriotic conversion. And we can get into that. Mm. Part three is York in war. So, so part two is 20 minutes. Part three is York in York in war, which is 25 minutes. And then part four is kind of York celebrated in Europe Mm -hmm. and America. So that's the last 15 minutes. So I'm curious, are there sections of the film that work particularly well for you? And are there parts where that you feel, uh, work, work less maybe, and maybe that's a way to get into this movie a little bit. Well, I tend to, I tend to agree with you. I think the, um, the early parts of the film work well. And I think um, especially the relationship between York and Pastor Pyle. Um, I think that, uh, of course, you know, it's Walter Brennan. Right. Um, what's, what's not to love. Uh, the second Walter I heard Brennan. his voice, I was so excited. Although I don't know what's going on with those eyebrows. Right. Uh, <laughs> those are fearsome eyebrows. Um, I just have to do a quick aside because I, I, I have to mention, uh, you know, we've seen Walter Brennan uh, before in uh, Rio Bravo. Um, and um, you and I have seen him in, in Red River. Uh, Hawks loved using Brennan. He used him in those films. He used him in To Have and Have Not. Uh, and one other thing I want to say about Brennan, Brennan is one of only three actors to have, have garnered three Academy Awards. Um, all of his Academy Awards were for a supporting actor. Uh, the year before Sergeant York, he got the, his third Academy Award for doing The Westerner, which was also with Gary Cooper. Um, bonus points, anybody who can name the other two actors have also received three Academy Awards. Um, and I will tell you right now that one of them is Daniel Day-Lewis. I was say, that's the one I know. Uh, yeah, Nicholson has three. Jack Nicholson. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis has three Best Actor Awards. Uh, Nicholson has two and then one Supporting Actor. Anyway, so I I, I love that part of the film. I, I think that works really well. Um, and, and you've already mentioned the turkey and the beef shoot. That's that's tr- that's tremendous. Um, I, I, I have mixed feelings about the patriotic conversion section because... In a way, there's there's things I like about that sequence. I I particularly like the, you know, Hawks is not an act, is not a director who always makes a, a a a strong visual stamp on me. But the scene, it's it's like an iconic image of um, York on the hillside, backlit with his dog as he's sitting there contemplating this book of American history. I I I, I really kind of love that image, and I and I do like. I do like the conversation he has with the commanding officers and they're kind of trading Bible verses with each other and kind of trying to have a theological argument. I mean, I, I, can, I feel both ways about it. I feel like, oh, it's talking and clumsy and obvious, but it's really interesting. Um, I hate the code. I hate the fourth section. Um, it's got to be there, but it's just it, it just feels kind of tacked on and anticlimactic, even though, you know, even though you know he's got to go back to Tennessee and get together with Gracie, with whom he has 10 children. Yes. Uh, you know, and, and get his land. Yeah. I mean, I would say so. So, and this is partially why I was asking some of the accuracy questions, because I, this is one of the things I was curious about is like, what if this movie is, so, so I would say uh, part three York and war is very accurate to York's account mm. of, <laughs> of what happens. Um, especially, I think there's this really important scene where um, 
Major Buxton, and I think at this point he's not a major. He's he's been he's been ele- er, uh, promoted from there. When they revisit the battlefield and they're talking through, I mean that scene is there intentionally because in the autobiography they make this point where York tells his version of the story, and then this is actually the most boring part of the book is then they go through and they just read affidavit after affidavit of people who were there, their accounts of what happened, showing like. It's not just York saying this, all these other people. It's like, so, so I feel like that, that the part where Buxton questions him about it on the battlefield mm-hmm. is, is like a version of like, yeah, like they actually did all of this, that they did a big investigation into it and talked to everybody to, and I presume this is part of the buildup to the Congressional Medal of Honor that they don't hand those out easily. So they were like, all right, let's make sure what people are saying really mm-hmm. happened. Um, and, and, you know, in some ways that that's the most accurate part of the movie. It's also a part I'm less interested in. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Although it's why the movie exists, which is sort of <laughs> funny. And then, and then and the um, last part with the exception of the Gracie stuff, with the exception when he gets back to Tennessee, that's pretty mythologized. Um, but mm-hmm. all of the stuff in New York, even meeting, um, uh, Senator Hull and all that stuff is, or he was a representative Hull at the time. And I have to credit Chris Garrett for pointing out, if thing about this is propaganda. I didn't realize that who Cordell Hull was in 1941, that he was the secretary of state for FDR. So mm-hmm. thinking about this as a mobilization film, you know, mm-hmm. pre Pearl Harbor, it's like, Oh, Cordell Hull would have meant something to people in 1941 mm-hmm. that it didn't mean anything to me. But I mean, all that, that stuff is pretty accurate to his account. Now, the stuff I love in part one, almost none of that feels um most of that is creation. The 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 beef turkey shoot, you know, like that, that's that is pure mythology. Now, what's interesting is in his book, he describes the culture of beef and turkey shoots. That's a very real thing. He explains mm. in really interesting detail the tradition of doing this. Although when York tells stories about it, they're never stories of him winning these things. You know, and then here is we need this mythology of him again doing this other impossible thing to prepare us for the, you know, so narratively to prepare us for what a crack shot he is. Um, all the stuff about the bottom land and getting cheated out of the deal and all like none of that stuff, uh-huh. at least in York's. T- so so I was like, well, that's interesting because and again, I'm not criticizing that as like, well, how could they do that? I'm saying like that's the part that's mythologized more. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is the impossible battlefield stuff is like, well, that's actually kind of the account. Like it's a pretty accurate, um, accurate uh, depiction of that. And then the other part that I found interesting was, and I feel like this is a part that I don't love about this movie is the stuff with, with major Buxton where he pulls out the U S history book because it plays as if York does not know American history growing up. Mm-hmm. And that, and in the fact of the matter is in York's telling of it, it's like, he's actually steeped in this history. So that tension that mm-hmm. that conversation with Holt with, um, with Buxton brings up is actually something that's always within him. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so I feel like, well, that's kind of unfair to York that, that, that he, that it's sort of like, let me tell you your history and hand you this book. And, you know, uh, so, so I, I actually think, York's a richer character than that gives him credit for, although mm. it does create the, uh, the, the, the patriotic conversion experience. The other thing I love about that is you get the, the two voices pile and Buxton going back and forth. And at the same time, one of the things I do love about this movie is the music mm-hmm. that it's this interplay of old 19th century revival hymns, which I'm a big fan of. <laughs> then 
I'm not a huge fan of like the, the, you know, like, uh, my country tis of thee and the, like the American, like the pay, kind of patriotic American songs, but the way they're sort of in combat with each other. And then they kind of musically resolve each other is really well done. I think in this movie, cause that's, it is a, it is a musical version of what this movie is trying, uh, the story is trying to do in this movie. Now I bring up all of this, not because I'm like harping on accuracy, but the thing <laughs> I found interesting about this movie is this is a movie about somebody. If I'm taking York at his word, who does not want to be mythologized. Mm-hmm. I mean, he does reject all of these offers to make a whole bunch of basically to sell his story and sell his experience and enrich himself on that. He does. He only reluctantly writes these autobiographies and he actually has his war journal locked away for 10 years because he doesn't want people to publish it and make money off it. Um, and he only does that because he wants to, re- um, he becomes a huge advocate for education, uh, post, mm-hmm. right. um, post war. And so he wants, and even making this movie is about raising money for a Bible school. He's trying to start for people in Tennessee. Um, so he so actively doesn't want to be mythologized. And and then this movie goes out of its way to mythologize him, even though the story of the movie is about him not wanting to be mythologized. So I feel like there's this weird, like circular thing going on there. And, and the thing I couldn't find is how did York feel about this movie? Yeah, that, that's a, that's an interesting question, Sam. I mean, I, I know that, I know that York had to be initially persuaded um, because in the late thirties, York was actually something of a, well, he was a pacifist and he was something of an isolationist. Um, and there's a, there's a legend and, and Mark Harris repeats this in his book, Five Came Back. Um, there's a, there's kind of competing stories. One, one is that um, he finally, York finally said, well, the film could be made if Gary Cooper plays him. But then, but another version of that story is, no, that was Joseph Lasky, the producer, who sent the cal- telegram saying that and as if it was from York and signed it as if it was from York. So, but it's a little, it's a little fuzzy to me, even reading Harris's account that somehow York changed his mind. You know, as late as 39, he was kind of going around the country talking about not getting into the war. And, I, and I'm not exactly clear on what it was that changed his mind, but then he became uh, supportive. Um, I think maybe fifty thousand dollars was part of it. I think that's what he was. Think that that's what he was paid. Um, but I, he I ends up read, making a hundred and fifty thousand off this. Yeah, and I haven't. I haven't. I, I haven't read anything about how he responded to it afterwards. I don't know. Yeah, I, you know the the thing I was thinking about and and watching this movie through twenty twenty three eyes is also very interesting. Like for one thing, I was talking with with uh, Doctor Garrett's last night about this and. Um, he said he asked like like you know why has nobody remade this movie and impartially it's like in 2023 this would be such a politically fraught movie story to tell i think the only way you could do it in an interesting way and even this would get so politicized it wouldn't be worth it is like in 2023 this would be a movie about how do you make a movie about sergeant york yeah, yeah like that would be the interesting version of this which is like what are all the considerations what are all the uh, political landmine, political and maybe religious landmines you walk into trying to to make this, and that might be the most interesting version of this movie. And that might not be an interesting movie, but I, but like I just can't picture this, you know, as something made um, 
something made made today. Uh, it does it does lead to the other thought I had as I was watching this. I did not look at when this movie came out when I first watched it, and I just kept wondering, like, man, is like where is this relative to World War II? And it was very interesting to be like, oh, 1941, it comes out on July 2nd, 1941, yeah, yeah. and it becomes, I think, a bigger hit post Pearl Harbor. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, you know, I, yeah. there are there are accounts of people going to this movie and then immediately going to enlist. Um, and they and movie theaters would throughout the war would continue to play this whenever they had a bomb. And it's like, OK, well, we got we can't show that anymore. Let's just go back to Sergeant York. Everybody will, will kind of be um, uh, be into that. Um, so this yeah, definitely it, feels like part of that psychological buildup, psychological mod- uh, mobilization pre Pearl Harbor. Yeah, it was the uh, it was the highest grossing film of 1941, in fact. And and it actually there was a whole controversy, as I'm sure, you know, there was a whole controversy over, you know, whether the film was well, I mean, it it uncovered a really deep and ugly um, uh, theme of anti-Semitism in American society, because there was idea that there was Jewish filmmakers who were producing this propaganda in order to push the U.S. into the war. And there ended up being a congressional hearing into into that whole into that whole issue but i want to go back to what you said about you know could you remake this film in 2023 or if you did how would you do it um it's interesting that a film like all quiet on the western front uh because of its particular view of war of the great war uh is a film that could be remade right and get nominated for an oscar right now uh whereas what mark i like what mark harris says about the film as a myth-making film about World War One, in which the film, in which the war was great. And he says, not pointless, but noble. And the sacrifice it entailed was not senseless, but heroic. So in that sense, it stands in a real interesting counterpoint with our, our earlier look at, say, Paths of Glory. So, and I don't think in 2023, um, it's possible for us to look at war that way. Uh, we've just had... Too much disillusionment with things like Vietnam, and then you know all all kinds of entanglements uh, abroad that really have kind of um, diminished the sense that war is actually glorious or heroic. It doesn't mean there aren't instances of heroism, and that's an interesting element of Sergeant York, right? That he is a hero, uh, and yet the idea that war is the appropriate theater for humanity to show its its best qualities, I think that's. That's a romanticization that we don't buy into anymore. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was also thinking about like how different would this movie have felt? Not not this movie, but if you had made a Sergeant York movie, let's say in 1933, or mm-hmm. you know, like like how would that feel different when you don't feel like we are on the because that's early enough where we don't feel like we're on the brink of of another world war. Or if you made it in 1953 you know, closer to like when Kubrick makes Paths of Glory and you get all that, you're getting all these, you know, World War II, uh, you know, kind of victory movies like the Sergeant or, or if you make this in, let's say 1973, mm-hmm. you, know, you could make Sergeant York in 1973, you know, like, like that would have a very different feel, but it, it is interesting how the us individual stories like this would get contextualized so differently, mm-hmm. you know, or, or, or would be, um, either countercultural or counter countercultural, like reactionary to countercultural to be like a very conservative movie where I think in 33, it wouldn't necessarily feel that way. Cause you could actually play the pacifist version of this story up a lot more 
where by 41, it definitely feels like um, we have to get him to a place where he is. He can't end this story feeling um, too uncomfortable about what he did. You know, it's, it's interesting, Sam, because as you say that, it seems to me that and maybe this is only because um, this is a film that's been made and so it restricts my imagination, but it seems hard for, to me to imagine telling this story in a sense for any other reason except to mobilize people to go to war. Right. You know, right. I mean, when I think about it, well, yeah, you could make it 1933, I suppose, or you could make it 1936 in the depth of the depressions and it would make depression and make people feel better about America. But really, what what is now, now, maybe you could tell the story differently if it were if it were a true biopic and, um, and and you truncated all the first part of this film and you got him into battle within, you know, 20 minutes. And then you did the Alvin York story afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But you know what? That's not very interesting. Right. I, no, absolutely. I, you know, I mean, who cares about that? So yeah. it seems like it's impossible. It his life is so mythologized. His life is so defined by what he did in World War I that it's impossible to tell the story as anything other than the heroism of, of the soldier. And mm-hmm. so why tell that story? Well, it's hard to know why you would tell that story if it was not in the context of either going to war or being in a war. You're absolutely right. No, and and I think about um, it's interesting. They don't really talk about the reasons why America is going to fight in World War One, except Buxton's speech as he's giving him the history book. And if you listen to those words, you know, I'm just going to read some of the things he says. You know, he talks about Daniel Boone and what was he looking for? Freedom. It's a st- this is the story of a whole people's struggle for freedom. That's your heritage and mine, every American's. But the cost of that heritage is high. Sometimes it takes all we have to preserve it, even our lives. It's like, I'm not sure that's the World War One motivation. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. It's like 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 it just feels like motivation for patriotism yeah, and for yeah. giving to your country. But it's like Yeah, it, it, it is interesting. Like 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 that that feels like uh we're trying to get people ready to go fight the next war. Um uh, and that's also what I that's also what I didn't love about that scene is is it's like that it, yeah that 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 feels like we're we're dropping this in here at this like this is the propaganda moment yeah, and the rest is, of the movie yeah. doesn't feel that way as much yeah that's motivation for world war 2 right because right. you know i mean world war 1 did not like that, that conflict in europe did not offer any kind of existential threat to american freedom mm-hmm. right i mean we it's because they sunk the lusitania and that's a progressive act against us so this this reminds me of one of my favorite scenes in the, in the film which also maybe explains why we why they don't cover exactly why we go to war and that is when they are in the, the store early on and they're reading the newspaper right mm-hmm. and he's got the he's got the newspaper open so we know that we're now in the same year as paths of glory right because and one of the years in um grand illusion is 1916 and verdun is the headline and all he's talking about i can't remember what it is the price of the price of something or other and it's yeah you know, very local concern and there's no sense at all that there's even a war going on. So in a way, I'm like, okay, so maybe they don't even know about when the Lusitania gets sunk. Maybe it's just, I don't know, for some reason, now we got to go to war. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's I think that's that's really interesting. Um, what do you think drew Hawks to this movie? I want to get back to the Hawks of this. Yeah, that's a good question because, you know, it was supposed to be William Wyler. 
Um, oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, and and Weiler ended up turning it down, and uh, Weiler and Hawks had had actually worked together on uh, on a film uh, earlier. It was uh, actually one of the films which Brennan won his best uh, supporting actor award. A film called uh, called Come and Get It, which is about oh. lumberjacks. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly what, what drew Hawks, maybe a good, maybe a good payday. I, I've heard that, you know, I knew that Weiler turned it down and we should also mention John Houston was, uh, kind of the guy that really, uh, four, I think four writers got credits for the script, but it's really a lot of Houston, John Houston. Um, but I don't, I'm not sure what got Hawks involved in it at all, to be frank. Yeah. Yeah. We should say this is a good year for the Houston family. His dad's nominated for, I think, best supporting actor and Houston's nominated twice for writing for both original and adapted screenplay. So, um, uh, quite a year for the, for the family there. Um, performances in this film, uh, Gary Cooper wins the Oscar for this. Uh, I have, less experience with Gary Cooper than you. And you said you have lots of holes in your Gary Cooper watching as well. But um, how do you feel about Gary Cooper in this movie? You know, that's an interesting question because um, I mean, I thought he was, I thought he was, ex- I thought he was very good. I thought he showed a lot more range than I've seen from Cooper before. Um, and yet there were still some critics that I read that thought his, I mean, I saw a range from this is definitely an Oscar performing role to people that I think he was kind of stiff. Uh, I, I thought he was really good. I, like I said, I, th- I thought he showed a lot of range, um, and I I managed to forget for a while that I was watching Gary Cooper, which I mm-hmm. think is an important important element. Um, so yeah, I, I, I was impressed by the performance. I could I could see why he got the Oscar. Yeah, it's interesting because my my first watching, not knowing anything about York, I was like, he's too old for this role. Well, he is too Cause, old because he's well, but not that much. He's forty in this movie, yeah. And York's twenty nine or thirty, so it's not that. Like yeah. I was thinking, York was like a twenty year old, but yeah. York's relatively old when he goes because he's born in eighteen eighty seven. Yeah. Um. So it's like so that that this my second viewing, I could let go of the age part. Because part of this felt a little bit like Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life, where it's like, you're playing a high schooler? <laughs> you know, yeah, like that yeah. seems weird. But but actually, actually, the casting's not bad. And and I believe that what Gary Cooper looks like as a 40-year-old, you know, ages down to 30 pretty well. Like, I don't think he looks too, you know, we're, we're uh, you know, we're a ways away from Gary Cooper in High Noon, where he looks, you know, sort of worn in a kind of way. I think, I think, he, I think that casting's pretty well. He's uh, he's believable in this to me. And the hard part for me is, um, and this is a generational thing, maybe, but like this is an era where it's not about like this is pre-Brando in terms of like really naturalistic acting right. and some right. of that stuff. So it's like I need to take a step back from that a little and be like. This he works in this movie. Um, I think I like him better in High Noon. I think that that version of him I like better. Um, I uh, we we need to, and this is something you mentioned uh, briefly here. We do need to mention Citizen Kane and Orson Welles. I mean, like like if you stack this performance up against what Orson Welles is doing in Citizen uh-huh. Kane, and I it's, I mean that's not necessarily fair to this movie, but Cooper does win the Oscar and and Welles doesn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh- and and Cooper himself was a little concerned about the age difference when he was cast. He was, a, a, but I have to say, when you think about the fact that it's only eleven years from this film to High Noon, he uh, he ages pretty quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. He had some health issues along the way. Well, as long as we're on the cast, um, I have to mention. Um, I I assume you spotted his younger brother George as Dickie Moore. 
who plays the kid in Out of the Past. And, oh, uh, yeah. I was, man, I thought that kid yeah, looked so, so yeah, familiar. And then when he came on screen, I was like, oh, my gosh, why why do I know that face? And that's who it is. It's Dickie Moore. And then I'm going to, you know, date myself. June Lockhart is the sister. And, of course, um, I grew up on reruns of classic TV from the 50s and 60s. And so she's the mother in the Lassie series in the 50s. And then she's the mother on Lost in Space in the in the 60s. That's June Lockhart for me. And then... Um, uh, Margaret Wickerly, uh, who the mother, we of course saw her a while ago as Ma Jarrett in uh, White Heat. Uh, oh, the wow! Of, yeah, she's Jimmy Cagney's mother in White Heat. So wow. it's uh, yeah. So she's she's like the range. <laughs> I was I was proud that I that I found Ward Bond in this movie, and I'm like, oh, oh we've seen and, a lot of Ward Bond. I, I missed Ward Bond. I knew he was there, and I didn't spot him. So because I love Ward Bond. But yeah, yeah. So he, he stuck we, by me. He's uh, in It's a Wonderful Life and Rio Bravo. Yeah, um, yeah. This is a much younger Ward Bond uh, here. He plays one of the drinking buddies of Yeah, his uh, he's Ike, but I yes. I didn't spot him. So Yeah, yeah. So I was I was excited to see uh to see that. Now, another thing about this movie, and I gotta say, the uh my rewatch there's something that that I normally say that I normally do watching movies that I had to turn off and it made the movie better is the first time I watched this. I had closed captioning on because I like to be able to see the text sure. and they, the accents that they do are real strong. Mm-hmm. Um, now they're probably accurate. Cause like, like uh, even in the, in the autobiography, it's written kind of in uh, he, the, the, the Australian writer who, who is the ghost writer for that. He talks about the dialect that um, Alvin York speaks Mm-hmm. And um and how that can be overblown, but like there there are there are there is a dialect in this part of Tennessee, and he writes the book somewhat in that dialect. Now the movie's a little stronger with that, but when you watch it with closed captioning on, it's really off-putting. Because for example, um, uh, George, his pronunciations of things sound ridiculous when you're reading the words. But the second time I watched it, I turned off the closed captioning and I perfectly accepted the way everybody talked because I was no longer comparing it to the like I was no longer reading the words in my head and then hearing them pronounce these things in strange ways. So uh, if you if you're watching this, I'm normally like turn the closed caption on. You got to catch the you got to catch the text. But uh, turning it off helped a lot with this. Well, that's that, it's, it's funny you should say that, Sam, because it, it brought to mind one of my favorite little scenes in the film, which is when um, York and Pusher first get to know each other and they're talking about, about his English. And, and when they, they say something about, you know, what kind of English you speak, and he says something like, well, we don't have any English people where, where, I, where I live. I just, yes. I, and, and, I, and I just, and, and they explain the subway to him. I just like that kind of little, uh, that little culture clash there because it, it could have gone in, in, in one direction, but it went in another direction, which I was, because I thought, oh no, he's going to be, kind of uh, made fun of and it's going to be kind of uncomfortable. And instead it becomes much more, as you might predict, of course, about camaraderie. And, but I, but I, I like the way they actually address that accent explicitly in, in, in that, in that film. Of course, Pusher's got a great New York accent. So the two of them together is great. Well, and one of the great things about that scene is whether that is historically accurate or not, doesn't matter. Yeah. But famously, when York is in New York afterwards and he is talking to, I believe it's the mayor of New York, and they're basically saying, let us know what you want. We'll give we can do anything you want. He famously says, I'd really like to ride the subway. Yes. So like so it sets up 
why he says that because you know clearly he learns about the subway at some point during his uh during his experiences and he's like i'd really like to see what that's like Mm -hmm. um so so they they, they're able to set that up that 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 real event they're able to set um to set that up uh do you have other things you want to talk about with this movie yeah i i just want to go back because you you gave me an opening earlier and i didn't capitalize it i want to go back to um what you said about the, the score the music of the film uh, because the, the film was scored by Max Steiner, um, who was really one of the great uh, Hollywood composers. And I know that you, uh, you like AFI lists. Uh, and the, uh, the AFI did a list of the 25 greatest film scores. And Max Steiner is on that for Gone with the Wind, uh, King Kong, uh, Casablanca, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, uh, just to name a few. And so he is. He is one of the. He is one of the great uh, uh, film composers of the '40s and '50s. Uh, and of course, uh, a German emigre, uh, which is so typical of Hollywood at the time. Absolutely. I want to. I want to maybe close by asking you this question. So, this is the fourth Hawks movie that we've seen. Um, we've seen Scarf- Scarface bring up Baby Sergeant York in Rio Bravo. I think that's the chronological order of of them mm-hmm. coming out. Now, I was curious where this sort of um, ranks with people in terms of Hawks's filmography. And this maybe speaks to how prolific of a filmmaker Howard Hawks is, um, but it's hard to find Sergeant York on people's lists. So, so I think the highest I ever saw it was 17th in uh, in a Hawks, uh, in lists of Hawks filmographies. Often people do like top 10 lists, things like this, and it's never in those. I never found anybody talking about it there. And this is both individual people. This was BFI. Um, a couple other organizations that were sort of celebrating the work of Hawks. Um, where does, for you, where does this fil- fit in with the sort of larger Hawks filmography and 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 then with the ones that we've watched? Well, well let me just preface, preface this by saying that um, David Thompson's uh, autobiographical uh, biographical, uh, diction, uh, encyclopedia of film, which I've mentioned before, uh, Thompson, who has very strong opinions about almost everything, absolutely loves Howard Hawks and has 10 Hawks films that he would take to a desert island with him. Uh, and none of them is Sergeant York. Um, a, a, an irony about Sergeant York is that this is the only time that Hawks was nominated for Best Director. The only mm. time he was even nominated. He, That's he was, shocking to me. Isn't that amazing? And I think part of it has to do with, with uh, even though Hawks worked in different genres, he worked in genres that the Academy doesn't often reward. So he worked in Westerns, right? And remember, John Ford never got a nomination for any of his Westerns, for which he's best known. Hawks worked in comedies. Comedies famously do not get a lot of love from the Academy. So I think that's part of the reason. So to answer your question, um, this, this would rank at the bottom of my list of Howard Hawks films. Um, I mean, I think it's an interesting film. I'm not unhappy that I saw it. But for me, it's more interesting as kind of a historical document and for the kinds of questions that it raises that you and I have been talking about. But if you asked me, you know, cue up a Howard Hawks film so you can get the pleasure you normally get out of a Howard Hawks film, it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like a film that is comfortable for Hawks. And we talked about that earlier. That's why I think the earlier part of the film works best because that's most Hawksian. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's not as though Hawks hasn't done war films before. He did Dawn Patrol, which is very fairly highly regarded. Um, but still, it's not exactly 
what Hawks does best. One of the critics I read said, this is a film best left, best left to directors like Stanley Kramer uh, and Fred Zinnemann. Uh, because they're directors that deal better with kind of social issues than, than Hawks does. At the same time, I think he's done a great job of making a, 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 a war propaganda film. I mean, if you want to get people to go out, march off to war, this is a pretty good film to do that. Uh, but I don't think that's what Hawks is usually interested in as a filmmaker. Yeah, I would agree. I, my, my read on this is Hawks understood the assignment yep. and delivered. But if I'm thinking about the ones we've watched, uh, Scarface is definitely my favorite of the Howard Hawks movies we watched. Um, then I could go back and forth between bringing up baby and Rio Bravo. I need to rewatch bringing up baby. Cause I think I would like it. If I watched it, I would like it a lot more. If I watched it again, this, this just feels like, um, I don't know. I like, like this. I love the first part of the movie. I think that's very fun, but um, yeah, this this feels like a lesser movie than than some of the other things that I've seen from him and some of the other films I've read about that I haven't seen that he's made. Those seem like they're um, uh, more substantial, sort of more substantial of a film. Well, as you can predict, to go back to your question, I'm, of course, going to put Bringing Up Baby at the top of the list of the ones that we've watched so far. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you have for us for next week, Barrett? How do we follow this up? Well, surprisingly, I am going to give us another Howard Hawks film next week. And this is Howard Hawks' World War II film in a much more uh, Hawksian vein. It was one of my favorite Hawks comedies. Uh, I Was a Male War Bride uh, from 1949 with, uh, with Cary Grant. Um, so uh, we haven't done Cary Grant, I don't think, since Bringing Up Baby. And uh, so... Uh, to me, since the, since Sergeant York was a film about let's go into World War II, I like I was a male war bride as a comment on okay we've we've done World War II now what do we think of that so that's uh, that's what we're going to queue up next week. Oh, I'm very excited, um, and I'm, I'm, because because I have to admit I'm glad to hear what you think of this film because I was I, I was talking to people this week and saying like. We're watching another Howard Hawks film, and I don't think it's amazing. And like, is Barrett gonna is is Barrett gonna just give up on me at a certain point? So I'm glad that you're that I think we actually have pretty similar feelings about this movie. So, um, mm-hmm. so that's uh, I, I feel better about that. I was really worried about disappointing you, uh, disappointing me with this. So I'm very excited, uh, Barrett. Thank you for recommending this film and uh, and uh, for having this conversation. Uh, again, I was talking with Dr. Gerritsen. It's sort of funny that I'm watching all these World War One movies now when I'm not teaching that course. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I, this was this was. Uh, I think you said it perfectly when you said this is a really interesting document, um, and it's not an it's not a uh, unenjoyable film to watch. But mm-hmm. it just doesn't feel it doesn't have the, the the weight of it. Although I would recommend that Alvin York. It's a it's a and it's a, a thin read it's not it's not a you know a, a huge book but it, it's pretty if you're interested in alvin york his autobiography is is a uh, is worth the read um so thank you for that that is all the time that we have but we will be back next week to talk about i was a male war bride in the video store <laughs>